0: Hi, this is Dave Davies of The Kinks.
1: Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo and welcome to Season 6, Episode 3 of Music Is Not a Genre. Thank you as always for watching and listening. New format, let's just get right to it. This week's topic is Death is Dumb, Volume 13, The Bee Gees. Brilliant Gents at Busting Genres. You see what I did there? The, 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 the B and the G, the brilliant and the gent, the busting and the genre. Yes, that's called cleverness. Uh, so why the BGs uh, For this and for Death is Dumb or for anything. Well, first of all, there were technically four, even though there were three in the band, there was Andy Gibb, and out of the, out of those four, three are dead. And all three untimely deaths. Very untimely and and tragic uh, two the BGs were awesome, and no matter how much you know about them, uh, if there's a certain kind of music you don't like because it's just not your style, I suggest looking more into the BGs because they were way more prolific and diverse than you could possibly imagine and way more consistent than you could possibly. Imagine from the early '60s, late '50s, if you count it, through uh, 2001, and even slightly beyond, depending on if you're counting some solo work, they consistently put out albums uh, that were both that that went all over the place. And we'll talk about that when we do the discography. And that's why I did the subtitle. They were brilliant gents at busting genres. They were restless in terms of not wanting to stick to one thing, just like last week's. Uh, a guest a guest, just like last week 's topic last last week's subject, Beck and rec, I would argue, and so many other artists that i 've talked to the' the ones that I find to be my favorites are the ones who continue to redefine what it means to be them and expand. What it means to be them. Uh, I just heard another podcast talk about identity and how identity is what we make it. We think we know who we are, or we think we're searching for who we are. Whatever that you know the case may be for you in terms of what are our parameters as as a human. What are our boundaries? And that's all just made up. It's Some of that stuff, it's nature, nurture, whatever, and things that we've grown up with. And some of it are uh, subconscious decisions that we make. Some are conscious decisions that we make. But we have more of an ability to expand who we are than we realize as people and as artists. I did an episode of that a couple of seasons ago, actually, about identity. Uh, I can't remember what it was called but look it up it's about identity music is not a genre <laughs> so that's why I'm doing the BG's and the question for you as you listen is this how do you know the BG's do you know them for their 60s work, their pop and kind of rocky uh, and 60s work? Do you know them for their mellow hits in the early 70s? Do you know them for the way most people know them for Saturday Night Fever and their disco stuff? Or are you not from the United States and, and, or Canada and you know them from their hits in the late 80s and 90s and early 2000s? I would love to know the answer to that. And I'll ask it again at the end. So let's get into it. Of course, I'm going to do history, then a discography, then some conclusions, and then the featured song. And please go to patreon.com slash music is not a genre to see the bonus, which is going to be a little bit about why they fell out of favor and what was going on in the world at the time. And I'll, uh, I'll mention that again towards the end. So the history, they were born in England, which I note because when I was a kid, I thought they were Australian. Why? Because they had moved to Australia. So I guess in some ways they were Australian. I guess dual citizenship, I don't know. But to me, in my mind, they were born in Australia, but they, but they weren't. They're British citizens. Uh, they started in 1958 as the Brothers Gib, which means they were kids. And there's a video going around, and I don't think it's maybe from that year, but it's from not too many years past that, uh, on YouTube, where they're singing on some, I assume, local Australian uh, TV show, and you can see how incredibly young they are. I mean, they sort of started to become famous uh, around, you know, in the same age as, let's say, Hanson became famous, uh, you know, or the Jonas Brothers became famous. Uh, again, a bunch of brothers, right? Uh, certainly earlier in their lives, they hit some level of fame than even the Beatles did. Uh, you should look that up. And you, and in particular... Pay attention to Robin Gibb, because there's a certain energy he has that I think he carried through his entire career and life in one way or another, and I'll kind of talk about that as we get into it. So in the early 60s, they had a couple of albums released only in Australia uh, before breaking out internationally, and we'll hear about those when we do the discography. They had uh, several hits in the 1960s and early 1970s before they uh, kind of fell out of favor Uh, and time had moved on, or so it had seemed. Uh, They even kind of broke up slightly in 1970, I want to say it was, after the album Odessa, Robin left to uh, do a solo album and quickly came back. Uh, And they were looking for a a new sound shortly after that and decided they wanted to do more things along the lines of soul and R&B and dance. And of course, that led to... Their huge next phase of their career wasn't their breakout, although for a lot of people, it seemed like it was because if you were below a certain age, you didn't even know that they existed in the 60s. You thought, oh, who's this new band, the, you know, the Bee Gees, uh, doing everything on Saturday Night Fever and having mega, mega, mega hits and even writing other people's songs and stuff that uh, subsequently I would come to learn, but at the time just assumed that that was where they got their start. Uh, and And the thing is... They didn't invent that sound, of course, and they didn't they didn't come into that sound for Saturday Night Fever. They started doing it a couple of albums before and it was creeping in even before that. But especially two albums a single album before, with songs like Jive Talking Nights on Broadway, You Should Be Dancing, Boogie Child, I think that's what got them that job at Saturday Night Fever and Robert Stigwood and all of that, because they had already been doing that music. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to that album, which is the only CD you see here, for those of you just listening. It's the only one on my diorama, Saturday Night Fever. And you kind of know why, but that's why I'm doing this as well. But those songs I mentioned were not originated on Saturday Night Fever. Some weren't on at all. Some were, but as a second run. Uh, due to a general, yes. Okay. I already talked about that. These are my notes, people. Um, I have an iPad right here. just off camera. It's a lovely setup that Catherine has done. They continued that success on the next album. I think it's called spirits having flown. We'll get to that in the discography, uh, and had some hits, Uh, but then they kind of fell out of favor because of cultural changes, because of a backlash, because of so many things, because trends moved on. But again, I'm going to talk more in detail about why that happened and specifically the cultural connection there and bias as to why they fell so out of favor in the United States and even Canada in the bonus episode on Patreon. Patreon.com slash music is not a genre. It's a really, really interesting topic that I've touched on before in other episodes, uh, one or two maybe, but I'm really going to go into it for this bonus uh, episode. So when they fell out of favor, they, they relied more on their songwriting, although they did do a bunch of things in the interim, even though they, uh, between 81 and 87, they didn't put out a, an actual full album but they were banned from the airwaves in the United States and, and really even they had a couple of minor hits after that later on, uh, and maybe one or two bigger hits in the early eighties, but they never really came back fully until they became a nostalgia act really in, in that sense in the United States when people started getting into like seventies and disco again, you know, in the nine in the nineties and 2000, uh, uh, conversely, they continued to have big hits and big success in the UK and Europe and other countries. And that's something I talk about all the time. And we'll get to that again in the discography Uh, the in the yeah, so they did a lot of uh work with other artists all throughout their career, but especially towards the 70s and then big time in the 80s. Uh, during that period when they didn't really know where to go next because of so many different things, and we'll talk about that when we get to, I'll mention some of them here. Uh, and they worked with Andy Gibb, their brother, Barbara Streisand, Chicago, on the Hot Streets album. Chicago will return the favor on their album, Living Eyes, or no, might have been Spirits Having Flown, actually. Uh, Dionne Warwick, Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers' famous song, Islands in the Stream, written by Barry Gibb. Uh, Kenny Rogers' full 1983 album, uh, mostly written, I think, or all written and produced by them. And Diana Russ's 1985 album. So uh also in that interim barry released some solo uh albums uh one i think and robin released three of them which i'll talk about uh morris would release his second single he never released a full album himself but he had a single in 1970 and a single in the 80s uh robin had also released a full album in 1970 that i that i did mention and i'll go over that as well Uh, their solo work was honestly really good but in particular Robin Shines, and you'll hear me talk about that, again, when I do the discography. Uh, and did you know, did you know, another great question, that they had a comeback in 1987? Yes, they did, everywhere, but in the United States, where their single that they put out uh, there barely scraped the top 100 but it was a hit in many other places. Uh, and then in 1988, Andy Gibb died from myocarditis at age 30 when he was apparently at the time supposedly clean and, and attempting to come back because he hadn't put out uh, a, an album, I believe, since 1980 or 81. Uh, and of course, he had, you know, drug issues and others, and that probably took its toll on his body uh, is what I would assume. In my memory for some reason I thought he had died in the, in the early 1980s but I think that's because that's when his career stopped. But then again I also did watch Solid Gold off and on in the 70s and 80s if you don't remember it it was a TV show about dance basically and he co-hosted it for a brief time in the early 80s with uh, Marilyn McCoo from the Fifth Dimension and that's kind of, I didn't know she was from the Fifth Dimension. I assumed that she was just from had a career and was on Solid Gold and that was it. But then Summer of Soul disabused me of that. Uh, They had a hit, uh, even in the US, it was a minor hit in 1989 with the song One, which is the title track of that album. They also released four albums from 1991 to 2001, all of which had some great uh, success, uh, yes, outside of the United States, and, and some critical acclaim, but mostly just a lot of success. Morris died unexpectedly, In 2003, at the age of 53, he had a heart attack while he was awaiting emergency surgery to repair a twisted intestine. Uh, He released his... uh, No, sorry. And so unfortunate timing, as had happened often with Robin, released his solo album, was set for release. I'm sure it couldn't be changed uh, shortly after Morris died in 2003. And again, it's striking how contemporary the album was for its time and how good it was, honestly, even more so than the Bee Gees music. Uh, how contemporary it was. The the ba- Ra- Barry and Robin each did a few things in the interim. Came together again in 2009, uh, planning to partially reunite, and they performed together off and on until 2011 when Robin was diagnosed with liver cancer, and he had been working on another album throughout those years, which was released posthumously, and I'll talk about that. But he died in 2012 at the age of 62. So you had Andy Gibbon 88, age of 30. Myocarditis, I think I said. Uh, uh, Morris, at the age of uh, 53 in 2003, heart attack, waiting for surgery. And then Robin, 2012, age 62, uh, liver cancer and I think kidney failure, liver and kidney failure. Uh, Barry, since Robin's death, has released two uh, mellow solo albums, one of which was original music and the other was uh, Redo's with other artists, kind of a, a, you know, thing like duets type thing uh, of old B.G.'s music and others, I believe. Uh, and then in 2020, that awesome documentary came out, which got me my interest up again from the BGs and helped me learn more about them than even I had ever known. The BGs. How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? That documentary, w- w- Kenneth Branner is supposedly working on a biopic. And I would love to see that if it comes to fruition. I hope he's still working on it. That's awesome. And that kind of brings us to where we are now. I went, I did kind of a gloss over there primarily because I am going to do a lot more of the nitty-gritty in the discography, which we're getting to at the moment. The discography starts in 1965 album-wise. Uh, I believe their first single was released on vinyl in 62, I want to say. And the reason I say it is because this first album, the BG Sing and Play 14 Barry Gibbs Songs, wonderful title, uh, A, only released in Australia, so the first two albums were, uh, and you can't find it streaming. You can find it on YouTube, though. It was a compilation of singles that they had released from 62 to 65. There wasn't a proper album. There were also five new songs. And what's interesting there is they did the order is kind of haphazard. You can hear their younger singles when their voices hadn't started to change yet. You can hear their older singles when they're more like young adults and everything. Uh, you can hear how stylistically diverse they already were doing doing folk pop, doing 60s rock, doing even a bit of a late 50s style rock and certainly kind of not do up vocal music like 60s harmonic pop. Very British. Very uh, There was some Beatles and, and other kind of British invasion band sound in there. Uh, some of the songs I like on this are How Love Was True, To Be or Not To Be, uh, And The Children Laughing, Wine and Women. And it's worth listening to, to hear. I wouldn't say it's my favorite album by any stretch, but it's worth listening to to hear how not Bee Gees they sound. You think of the Bee Gees, I know what you think of, and don't deny it, but they don't sound anything like that on any of these songs. And, I, I, and how also they were really writing... Good songs from the very beginning. They focused on good songwriting. Barry especially, but the but Robin had already been writing. Uh, Morris wouldn't do as much, but he would do some, and some of his stuff I really enjoy. Uh, so that brings me to the second album, Spicks and Specks, in 1966, which is their first proper full album. It was not a compilation. And again, you can hear them jumping styles. You can hear them adding a little bit of other styles to what they had already done. It's more cohesive, of course, because it's an album Uh, and because they were finding their sound or such as it was at the time. It has an overall melancholy feel, but with energy. And that can define so much of what the BGs have done throughout their career. Kind of melancholy, but with an, an energy to it. A uh, certain energy to it that isn't just depressing, you know. Uh, some songs I like, How Many Birds, I Don't Know Why I Bother With Myself, which is the first Robin composition uh, recorded. And really, you know, a good one. And Spicks and Specks, the title track, I like that too. Which brings me, paradoxically, to the third album, which is called BGs First. In 1967, why is it called their first album? Because it was their first international album released, you know, everywhere or wherever in in all the territories, the UK and Britain, Canada and all that stuff. It also starts their partnership with Robert Stigwood, who would, you know, be important as a producer for many of their albums, but also when it came to Saturday Night Fever. It has a very kind of chamber pop psychedelic style to it, which, of course, in 67, so many bands were doing that. But it's not just uh, an echo of what was going on with other bands. They had their own signature to it. They had good songwriting to it. If you were to compare this to me in the first couple of albums uh, that were released internationally to what the monkeys were doing after their their show ended and they were experimenting more and getting more psychedelic i think you can find some similarities to that you can find some similarities to the beatles psychedelic period i would say in terms of substance and overall effectiveness they fall somewhere between the beatles and and the monkeys uh monkeys did interesting stuff but i think that the bg's in terms of this era were doing much better work uh some songs i like turn of the century holiday was was the biggest hit uh up until then uh red chair fade away super psychedelic and i think you'd love listening to that song it's got a mellotron and all that stuff in my own time is a mod it's a, like a mod rocking song kind of like early the early who uh every christian Lionhearted man will show you was also a hit and weird for to being a hit, as was New York Mining Disaster 1941, which anybody who knows the BGS history probably knows that song. And To Love Somebody, also a huge hit. So they, they came out internationally, damn. And it's an excellent album from beginning to end. It's probably one of my favorites of theirs, I would say. In 1968, they came out with an album called Horizontal, which uh, was even more psychedelic and even more artsy right from the get-go they they weren't pulling back and saying, you oh, know we had some hits let's just make pop hits they were still experimenting i'm going to drink very loudly now for those of you listening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there you go so no dead air uh their songwriting is just getting better and better it is not just straight up pop as i mentioned there's always something more interesting going on with all of the songs that they're doing some of the songs i like world is a great opener it was a hit Uh, lemons never forget I mean just listen to that again like the one I mentioned on the previous album Massachusetts a big hit and it's another Robin lead vocal I think he might have written it as well uh, which I think he's like a stealth asset in this band. You know, um, you know, you think of the BGS as a unit first and then as Barry second because he did so many lead vocals, especially for um, the 70s era, although you'd be surprised how many of those lead vocals were also Robin or just solely Robin. Uh, Harry Braff, also a fave of mine from that. In 1968, love the cover of this album. It's, called, it's an album called Idea. Look up the cover. Idea nineteen sixty eight BGS more pop some soft rock is is creeping in even more but still some out and out rock still a lot of psychedelic and and introspective and it's even I think in some of ways even more experimental than the previous albums uh, there's lots of Robin lead vocals here too I think they did a lot more division other than in the seventies and early eighties like mid seventies early eighties when Barry took most of the leads. They usually would bounce back and forth between, like, it would be as though Barry was, I don't know, let's say Paul or John or whichever, and Robin was the other one. And then Morris was more like a George or even more like a Ringo as far as how many leads that he would take. Uh, some of the songs I like from Idea Kitty Can, Down to Earth, Such a Shame. Their big hit, I've Got to Get a Message to You. Great. You know, Swallows Fly. I have decided to join the Air Force. And another huge hit, I Started a Joke. And it's often the one when you think, oh, did you know the BD, BGS existed before Saturday Night Fever? Do you know the song I Started a Joke? And I think it's also another Robin song. That's usually the one people go to first. Kilburn Towers, another good song. Which brings me to 1969 when they did an album called Odessa. And that was them, to me, taking their artsiness to its fullest. It was a double album. It was also, to me, the culmination of their first period of the type of music they were doing. It was intended as a concept album and has been often considered an unsung classic. Uh, You know, they they had sort of hits. Uh, from the album, not as big as their previous hits, and this was considered kind of the beginning of a slide for them in some ways. But a lot of critics now listen to it, and and, and the other musicians in particular, and say, "Wow, this was a great album." But it also created a lot of tension in the band as far as the direction they wanted to go in, which is why after Odessa Robin left the band forever. No, just kidding. Uh, they had the same mix of styles. But they added two very interesting things, progressiveness, progressive pop in particular, and country music, two things that would show up, you know, in, in the future in more in subtler ways, but kind of very important additions, certainly not the last important addition to their style, to their busting genres. Uh, some songs I like, You'll Never See My Face Again, Marley Purt Drive, Melody Fair, which was a sort of hit, Whisper Whisper, Never Say Never Again um interesting uh the fir- first of may which was the biggest hit from this album first of may which leads me to a slight break and i'm doing this because i think the solo work is important to see the picture of the bgs maybe not as so much andy i don't go as much into him later but the as far as the the big three R- the robin put out an album called robin's rain in 1970 rain spell r-e-i-g-n and it's a funny cover with, I think he, he think he has like a king hat on, but it's sort of insouciant the way he wears. It. And it was his first solo album. I think it's quite different from what the Bee Gees were doing. It was really Robin kind of spreading his wings and really getting into the type of music that he liked, which I think has always been music that was more contemporary. Uh, I mean, the, B, the Bee Gees were contemporary at the time too in, in the ways they were doing and will continue to be so. But Robin really dug right into that. That's all his solo stuff, you know, would be like that. And, and I'll say this, too. When you look at that old uh, YouTube video when they were kids, and Robbins just out there and giving it his all, and, and I, w- I won't say trying hard, he was doing hard. He was doing so hard, just, just giving to the nth degree, over and above. To me, that really characterizes his, all of his solo work where he's just putting it all out there and really going for it and go and 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 in some might say he was trying hard or too hard that if he had pulled back and been more introspective which he started to do later in his career maybe his solo work would have been more successful i don't know about any of that and i kind of just made it up anyway just as an art just for argument's sake some of the songs i like uh august october uh, was a single and Mother and Jack they both use a drum machine that sounds eerily like my dad's old drum machine which I end up using on uh, an, uh, a new album new rec album song called Rhythm 77 which uh you heard a clip of if you're on Patreon and uh you heard the whole thing if you're on Patreon honestly Saved by the Bell was a big hit from this uh, so that brings me back to the Bee Gees same year 1970 Cucumber Castle which was them, the beginning to me of their period of trying to figure out where they wanted to go next and what they wanted to do next. Uh, They were going in a different direction. They weren't doing the stuff they had done in the sixties. It's, it's one of the many transitional albums from this period. It was, had some of the previous elements of things they had done, but it was much more folksy and country and also didn't have Robin. This is the album he missed. With the BGS because of his breakup from them, uh, the song, the title uh, uh, of the album came from a song of the same name. It was a TV special they had done, and it was named after a song from their first uh, international album. And then, but they wanted to create, I think, a story around the whole thing. If you look at the album cover, it's them. They look like knights. I want to say, kind of interesting. Uh, songs that I thought were interesting, especially because they sounded really nothing like they had done before to that point, I O I O, uh, the Lord, which was sort of a satirical folky religious country song with, uh, some interesting time signature moves. I lay down and die, burn me down by the river. My thing, don't forget to remember, which was the hit from here. It will say that even during their so-called slide period, they did end up having, you know, one hit from almost every single album that they put out including another album later that year when Robin rejoined them called Two Years On, again, 1970, them still exploring, taking more turns, not sticking to one thing. There's some pop rock. Teeny bit of soul creeps in. And there's a lot of stuff that they had done before too. There's still a lot of the country twang uh, throughout the album that you heard, especially on, uh, I think a little on Odessa, but especially on Cucumber Castle. Uh, Back Home is a great pop rock. The song Back Home from two years on, the Bee Gees, great pop rock. Lonely Days was the big hit. And you you may have seen um video on YouTube and them performing it on some TV show. I, I forget who it was, Merv Griffin or something. And it was a pinch of what would be coming for them stylistically. They were starting to creep just very, 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 very so slowly into kind of white soul you know, uh, Northern Soul, whatever you want to call it. And it's it's also kind of progressive for being a pop song. It's quite quite progressive. Uh, 1971, Trafalgar was their next album. And it was even a little more creeping of that future sound coming in. The Their 70s sounds a teeny, teeny, teeny bit of falsetto. It's mellower than previous albums. Their big hit from that was How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, which was a lead vocal shared by Barry and Robin. It was... Funny enough, their first number one hit in the U.S. All those other hits, I Started a Joke and Mining Disaster, all those, no. Big hits, but their first number one was How Can You Mend a Broken Heart in 1971. Some other songs I like from Trafalgar are Israel, The Greatest Man in the World, Somebody Stop the Music, the title track, which sounds like a Lennon solo song, even vocally very, very much so, Don't Want to Live Inside Myself. Also has a little bit of that sound to come, but with a Beatles flair. Really interesting. That's a great song. Just Don't Want to Live Inside Myself is a great album cut from the Bee Gees' Trafalgar. And in the way that it's meshing things they had done with things they would do more of with other stuff. Like Yeah, you just need to listen to it to understand. Uh, To Whom It May Concern was their 1972 album, similar to the previous album. Little more of the future sound creeping in, but them still doing rock and country, some blues, some folk rock. Their big hit from this was Run To Me, excellent single. Bad Bad Dreams is kind of a country rock, and I love this song. It's a ton of energy. And again, when you think of Bee Gees, you would not think of this sound, but it's such a great song, and it proves they weren't just settling into soft rock and pop that they were still doing some rock. Uh, Road to Alaska is a cool kind of boogie song. Sweet Song of Summer is very nice, too, and has a really cool synth to it. Life in a Tin Can was their next album in 1973, and really at this point, I think it was rushed out. They were kind of treading water. They were on a new label, and things were a little bit haphazard, I think. But they weren't really in a place of renewal yet or really embracing a new sound or anything. And I think they kind of knew as they were making this album that they needed to go somewhere else. It's not a very strong album. There are some good songs, which I'll mention. Uh, Robert Stigwood did not produce this, of course, new new label and all that. It's much more folk and soft rock. And, and it really was kind of like, eh you know, and I don't think there was a big hit from this album. And this really is kind of their last album to me from their transitional period, even though it's on a new label, I would lump it in with those previous few albums as far as being uh, transitional. Some songs I did like though. Some, they're still strong songwriting, but, and, you know, saw a new morning, South Dakota morning, while I play and my life has been a song. Uh, and I think this is a good time to take a break that little fun break I do in the middle, uh, before we get to the next phase of their career, because it's, uh, you know, ramping up to the big one. So, um, we'll, we'll see if you don't want to listen to my pitch, but please do because there's a lot of important stuff in there. Uh, but if you've heard it and if you've already jumped onto Patreon or all the things that I like to talk about, then go ahead and hit that 15 second button about six times and it'll get you past there. Uh, I'll be right back. Hey, So I was going to do the usual And just list all of the links That I'd love for you to check out But I realize that Everything you need to know And everywhere you need to go Is at nickdimatio.com That really is the hub I list all the links In every episode Just in case But nickdimatio.com Is where I put everything That I do If you want to know more About this podcast Whether it's the audio version Or the YouTube version At a youtube.com Slash app music is not a genre Or wherever else The podcast shows up Or if you want to support The podcast at patreon.com Slash music is not a drama. Just go to nickdemadio.com. It's all there. If you want to check out my full discography of original music and covers for my band Rec, REC, and beyond, it's at com, including all the streaming and social links for wherever you listen to music and wherever you check out your social. Uh, my acting clips are there. My voiceover clips are there. Graphic design, my blog, and most especially, it's the best place to contact me. If you go to com slash contact or just hit the contact is on every single page. You can send me a note, say hello, ask me any questions you'd like. You get a newsletter a few times a month and... If you have a project of your own and need work done for it, whether it's audio editing or music or voiceover or graphic design, or if you have an event and you need live music, go to nicktomadio.com. Contact me. Say hello. Let me know what you need. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. So, what'd you do? Did you do the fifteen-second thing, or did you listen through? Uh, I'm not going to judge. That's up to you. It's totally up to you. And if you're on YouTube. I don't know. Well, that's a whole different ballgame. So let's get to the next phase of their career, which to me is their third phase, really, unless you count the pre-international as a different phase, which I think you might want to. So it's really their fourth phase, which for people who hadn't, you know, I mean, they've been around over a decade at this point, but that's a lot of phases. just shows you all the genre bust they've done, the changes. 1974 would see the release of their their album. Mister Natural it was a it was a renewal for them. Uh, they didn't necessarily have a big hit from it, but in terms of what they were doing and and working towards and in reinvention musically, it was super super important. And what I'll say is this: I think anytime an artist jumps into a new style unexpectedly. Uh, unless there's a giant hit on that album, that first time they make that style change, people are going to be like, oh, crap, I don't know what they're doing anymore, and it might not be Super and they Or the label might not push it the way it needed to be pushed. And then in the next album, if they stick with that sound and stick to their guns, they probably achieve a little more traction on the new direction. So Mr. Natural was the first part of that. It, it saw them getting more heavily into soul and R&B, uh, partnering producer wise with the reef Martin. Uh, and it was not well received again, like I said, but I think it was because you know, they, that the world wasn't ready for that change. There was a little bit more falsetto. There's still some folksiness in there, but a lot less, they were really phasing that out. Some of the songs I like from this down the road voices, dogs, you will recognize the sound of the song Dogs. That's all I'm saying. Dogs from the album. Mr. Natural, listen to it. Mr. Natural title track is good. Heavy Breathing was really great because it established their particular mix of pop rock and R&B soul. Like you listen to that, it's all of that together. That's a sound as far as I'm concerned. And that was their, their one of their signature sounds. Which brings me to 1975's album, uh, a very important album, it, Main Course. It solidified their new direction, their new sound. It added funk and disco and R&B to the, to the soul that they had been doing. Uh, there were new musicians on these albums, which is partly why the new sound, I think a new uh, recording studio as well. It revived their career, especially in the United States, really everywhere, but especially in the United States it was when people started to take notice uh, to them again as far as uh, them being potentially commercially viable and really in the mix as far as contemporary music goes. People finally had time to digest this change of sound. And there were stronger songs, just frankly. I think that... Their previous album was them writing the songs they used to write for a new sound in some ways, uh, with some exceptions. But this was them writing for the new sound. When you think of songs like Nights on Broadway was a hit. Jive Talkin'" is from this album. Enough said, right? Uh, by the way, my cover band does, uh, does this song live and it's a really fun song. Wind of Change is like Philly Soul, Great Strings. Might be my favorite song on this whole album. Excellent, excellent song. Listen to Wind of Change from Main Course. Fanny was a minor hit. All This Making Love, you hear still a little bit of their earlier rock sound. In their Edge of the Universe, Baby As You Turn Away, some other faves. Which brings me to, okay, this is it. No looking back. They've embraced their sound fully. No, nothing else on here, really. 1976's album Children of the World which was big for them. People had already started taking notice, and this one super, super hit. Uh, A new producer was working with them who would work with them throughout, I think, till the, I want to say the early 80s. Uh, I mean, there is a song on here that will surprise you, which is the song, You Should Be Dancing. Oh, that's from Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, it is. But no, it's not. That's the second time it was on an album, quote unquote, of theirs. It showed up, first and as a hit on children of the world and i think it's one of the songs like jive talking that got them their you know their position there's such prominent position in saturday night fever uh, love so right was a hit lovers very cool song i love the vocals on lovers and i love the beat on lovers can't keep a good man down is freaking funky boogie child was a big hit subway shows to me Like that other song on main course uh, that kind of mixed things or Mr. Natural, it was heavy breathing. When you think when you listen to the song Subway from Children of the World, it shows how they were able to absorb and integrate new styles and mix it with their own amazing and the title track children of the world also very good which brings me of course to the one that's behind me here my diorama the only one saturday night fever why because i was a kid i didn't know them before this and didn't really honestly explore them much uh after 79 let's say uh, but was so so into saturday night fever as i was greece Sub- the subsequent year i was obsessed with the movie, but particularly with the soundtrack, knew it back to front, would as a kid perform it for whoever would watch. It's not a proper Bee Gees album, of course, but the whole, I think, first side is their stuff, and then they also uh, wrote songs that other people did, which is something they would do more frequently. And when I hear songs from this album, even though a lot of it's overplayed, I still tingle. I just do. Songs like "Staying Alive, How Deep Is Your Love, Night Fever, More Than A Woman, The Yvonne Elman version of If I Can't Have You, which is superior to their version, which you can find. A fifth of Beethoven, which is like Hooked on Classics. Look up Hooked on Classics. A lot of that would pop up in those years. And I just freaking love... Come on. The Other More Than a Woman by Tavares. I always thought it was cool that there was two versions. I did that on Synergy for the Weird. I had two versions of of, uh, two different songs whatever we have to do to wake up high in all kinds of right because i think interpreting songs in a different way can mean they can still be you know damn good and, and it brings out other colors night on disco mountain based on the Mussorgsky uh, classical composition freaking love that uh jive talking and you should be dancing we're put on there again uh as i mentioned uh boogie shoes kc and the sunshine band disco inferno by the tramps do not even get me started just freaking awesome. There was also a Cool and the Gang song on this album called Open Sesame. This was where they had had, I think, a hit or two by then, but not, they didn't hit their big, big period until after this. Uh, also, and I'm gonna mention this because we're getting into 1978, uh, uh, 78 before their next album. Uh, they, As I said, they were writing songs for other people, Barry in particular. Barry wrote the the theme song, The Grease that Frankie Valley performed. Greece is the word that you had, you know what they he wrote that. And you should know when you listen to it. I mean it's technically a disco song. You always wondered why the hell did it open that that's that, that uh, movie about the 50s. It wasn't in the stage production of Greece. He wrote it for the movie on a streak after Saturday Night Fever. And then they release an album in 1979 called Spirits Having Flown, which did move their sound forward somewhat, but it still had a very strong foot, foot and a half in disco. Foot and another toe, let's say. It's honestly a a very strong album. It's a better album than we remember it being, with songs like Tragedy, Too Much Heaven, Love You Inside Out, Reaching Out, Living Together, I'm Satisfied, until uh, the first... Three, listed above, Tragedy, which I did a silly cover of on cassette when I was a kid, when it came out. Uh, I don't remember the original lyrics. The only lyrics I ever knew from Tragedy are tragedy, when you're punched in the eye and you don't know why it's tragedy. I don't know. And then it goes on and I don't really need to go. Punched in the mouth from someone down south. It's hard to bear when you're punched in the nose and you're getting pulled by the hair. That's my parody at the age of whatever, 11 or 10. But those three songs, Tragedy, Too Much Heaven, and Love You, Inside Out, those are all singles that went to number one. After three other singles that had gone to number one, it ended a run of six number ones in a row, which was a feat then only shared by Bing Crosby, Elvis, and the Beatles. I don't know if anybody else has has joined that uh, club. Uh, let me know if you know. But as we know, by 79, they had that those hits and yeah, they'd have a few little hits in the early 80s, but they were demonized uh, because the Disco Sucks movement came about. I'm not going to say a lot about it because it's the in the bonus Patreon episode at patreon.com slash music is not a genre, but I'm going to get into culturally why Disco Sucks happened. It went far beyond trends moving on or people losing interest in the music. Let me just say that and i think that disco and the bgs in general were unfairly demonized especially considering a lot of the stuff that came after them was just modified versions of what used to be called disco they just called it a different name okay 1981 comes and they release their last album from really this phase of their career uh living eyes and it was a successful album Everywhere, except for the US and the UK and I think Canada, because by then they had been so demonized that there was no way they were going to hit the, you know, hit the pop charts. It branched out their sound. A little bit of folk pop was back in, but it was still too much like their previous couple of albums for for the markets, US, UK and Canada. Uh, they wouldn't be able to break out, and they, honestly, in my mind, they never really did break out of their demonization in in uh, in the U.S. in and probably Canada. In the U.K., they did. We'll talk about that. The hit from this album, "Living Eyes," the title track, <clears throat> "Don't Fall in Love with Me," "I Still Love You," "Wildflower," "Crying Every Day," or other songs that I like. "Crying Every Day" is like a very '80s techno pop, which shows they were listening, as they always had been and it's a robin song of course and honestly that song crying every day which is a very strong song sounds more like his solo work than any of the work that the bgs were doing uh, i liked be who you are as well from that album which brings me to a pseudo album of theirs the movie staying alive which was a you know not was so was i guess a sequel to saturday night fever in 1983 they produced the soundtrack to the film and contributed uh, ha- half of the music, I guess. The first side of the album is all theirs. And it was really the, this was really the end of that era. Let's not say Living Eyes was. 83, even though it's not a full album, was the end of that era that started with uh, Mr. Natural. Uh, it's basically updated disco. It's one version of early 80s dance music. I did. It has more synths. It has more electro and those tight, crunchy guitars with no echo on it, that early 80s production that I've always enjoyed. But honestly, it's just modified disco. I did an episode a couple seasons ago called Where Disco Went When It Stopped Being Disco, which I'll mention again in the bonus episode. And and I talked about how if you listen to disco and then what came after disco, there's hardly any difference. You'll hear differences, but you can hear the connection so well including in their music. Uh, the hit from this, uh, uh, The Woman in You, was a big hit, even in the States. I Love You Too Much is another song I like. Uh, on side two, it's notable there were other artists. Frank Stallone did a song, Far From Over, which was very well known. It was a big hit, and it's used in a lot of parodies and montages. It's like, dun 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 that's that's that song and that's where it came from it came from staying alive uh yes and so then they take a break from doing album, full albums they after living eyes they did that half album for staying alive robin branches out during their break and does some solo work he puts out three solo albums how old are you in 1983 it's new wave and it's really good it's better than you would think it would be and it had hits everywhere but the states even the uk there was a hit Juliet, good song title track how old are you i love that song in and out of love uh it was an international hit that was the hit secret agent in 1984 more robin more new wave boys do fall in love was a very cool song i like that song it was a hit in some places but not as big a hit as the previous one so you can see that kind of solo career waning a little bit robot shows how much he kept trying to listen to what was on the ground the ear and it's a more contemporary you listen to it and you say is that a bg that i'm going to tell you robot from uh, his album secret agent you can't find it stream. You can find it streaming. Uh, Ain't nothing gonna break my stride is kind of what it sounds like. If you want to know, uh, the title track "Secret Agent cool, was intended to be like Shannon's "Let the Music Play," which was one of my favorite songs of the time, and you can hear the similarities in here. "Living in Another World" is also a cool song. Uh, following that with a third. Uh, oh no, sorry. That same year in 1984, Barry released a solo album called "Now Voyager." Uh, solid early mid 80s work, soft rock and pop. Good variety is some funk. Fine Line was a hit. There's some actual rapping on Fine Line that he does, not a guest rapper. Face to Face with Olivia Newton-John was also a big hit. Shatterproof is very funky. Shine Shine is a good song. The Walls Have Eyes was Robin's final solo album in the 80s in 1985. Walls Have Eyes. And the last one he would release until 2003, almost 20 years. Moving forward with his style... Into that mid-80s sound, which I do not particularly like. You Don't Say Us Anymore is a good opening song. Gone With The Wind is a good song, and Do You Love Her is a good closer, but I think that, you know, not as strong an album, and it's not streaming anywhere, but, you know, worth listening to. The movie Hawks in 1986. The soundtrack was produced and co-written by Barry. It starred Timothy Dalton and Anthony Edwards. It's a very typically 80s soundtrack, and that's all I'm saying. Finally, the BGs come back in 1987 with the album ESP. They're uh, back with their producer from their transitional period in the 1970s, and it's an interesting kind of re-reinvention. They're starting of their next phase. I guess it would be their fifth phase. Now I'm forgetting how many I counted. And it shows how, ba- or maybe sixth, it shows how Barry and Robin were doing different things. Uh, their their solo careers kind of brought that out. It's very synth, very techno, very late 80s, so I don't love the production. It's kind of like Mr. Mr. Natural is in that it, it introduced a new sound for them that people weren't ready for, not even internationally. In the U.S. was never really ready. This Is Your Life was a hit. It's a good song. Back to Funk, good song. And then comes their true next whatever comeback, The album won in 1989, which everywhere but the States was a giant comeback for them. Very pop, but also very melancholy, which they often would go to melancholy. It's an interesting amalgam of lots of what they had done, but not everything. I, again, don't like that late 80s production, but it's a little better than ESP. Uh, Their title track was a huge hit everywhere but in the States, but it also was a minor hit in the States, which I didn't know, you know. Uh, it again shows how they integrated current styles. Uh, it's My Neighborhood, Tokyo Nights, Flesh and Blood, House of Shame, You Win Again, All Ones I Like, High Civilization, in 1981, typical production evolution for a band of their time. It's sort of like what Peter Gabriel was doing, and I like it a little better than the previous two. It also seems a little more adventurous, even a little more progressive, but also very pop, more diverse than their previous couple of albums. Uh, the title track, High Civilization was like what a 1970s progressive band would do with a pop song at that period. Uh, when He's Gone is cool pop rock, Party With No Name and Dimensions, or almost New Jack, but also very Peter Gabriel of the time. Human Sacrifice will surprise you because it has like a poison backbeat and the overall sound and feel as well. And True Confessions is pretty cool too. Sizes and Everything was their next album in 1993. They were supposedly moving away from their previous three albums, but honestly, there's still a lot of synth pop rock. And it's again sort of transitional for them. Uh, Some of the songs I like Omega Man, Haunted House was a nice evolution from previous albums above and beyond. Fallen Angel is an excellent frickin Robin techno song. It shows where he'd be headed on his solo work years later and connects to also to the 80s solo work. It's sort of the right in-betweener. Still Waters in 1997 was their next album, and it's that nice, tight, dry, mid-to-late 90s production. Still quite synthy, but there's more rock coming in. Some songs I like, I Surrender with my eyes closed, Irresistible Force, Closer Than Close, Smoke and Mirrors. Uh, I'd like to note that all of the albums from one to here, again, were international hits, not hits in the U.S., they spawned several hit singles, not in the US. Do not forget that when you watch the bonus episode. 2001, their last album as a threesome, or really ever. This is where I came in. And it would have been really another restart of an next phase and a reinvention uh, if Morris hadn't died soon after that. It's genuinely nothing like their previous five albums, other than there's a little electro in there. It's back to rock and folk. And they even said at the time this was them re-embracing their older sounds, like from the late 60s, early 70s. Some songs I like, this is where I came in. She Keeps Coming, which is like alt adult, man in the middle, deja vu. Technicolor Dreams is more like their 60s work than anything they had done in the previous 20 years, but also very 1920s, you know, sounding. Embrace is an even better techno pop song by Robin than Fallen Angel. And if I had to say, listen to one song you wouldn't have expected from the freaking Bee Gees, listen to 2001's Embrace from This Is Where I Came In. Just do it. Just don't even think about it. The Extra Mile is like Barry, early 70s. Voice in the Wilderness might be the best song on the album, uh, and it's hard rock. It's really, actually, surprisingly good. Uh, and uh, For My Money as Great, songwriter as Barry had always been, and and even singer, this, this and the previous few albums shows how much Robin was kind of rising and getting more confident in what he was doing. But as you know, it will be their last because Morris died in 03. And as I mentioned, Robin's solo album came out shortly after Morris died. It was called Magnet. I freaking love this album because when I listened to it, I didn't expect it to go where it went. It's way more contemporary than anything the Bee Gees had done in many, many, many years. It's pop, funk, R&B. Some people might say it's an overreach, kind of white boy soul type thing. But it's very well done. I don't remember who produced it, but it leans all the way in. It's not him just dipping a toe. He's like, oh, I want to do something with a rap on it, which is the song, please, somebody else rapping. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be that kind of lover, kind of feel, like, you know, soulful. I'm going to do it. Excellent production. Don't want to wait forever. Wish you were here. Inseparable. Good songs. I think Inseparable is probably my favorite song from the album. Another Lonely Night in New York City was on his 1983 solo album, and then he updated it here. He also did the song Love Hurts, which was an old song uh, covered a couple of times. He put out a Christmas album in 06, Robin. Very traditional songs, kind of worth listening to. And then in 2012, he died. He had been working on music, and in 2014, they uh, posthumously released it. um His son uh, helmed that and kind of put it together. It's called Fifty St Catherine's Drive. It's not streaming. <clears throat> it's worth finding though. It's a lot more like his early stuff. It's not as interested in being contemporary, although there's some of that too. It's to me is the most confident he had ever sounded, the most relaxed that Robin ever sounded in his career. I think it's his best album even though there are other things from other albums I like more song-wise. It's him, again, not trying. Days and Wine and Roses is beautiful. Shows he was still writing amazing songs. Instant Love, Alan Freeman Days, Sorry, Avalanche, Solid, and Sydney. So nice. Barry puts out a solo album in The Now in 2016. Super solid and diverse, but my question at the time was, why is he still singing falsetto? He has this great rock pop voice. He could have done it. He, I think, sang falsetto on every single song. Whatever, maybe that was his choice. But I do like In the Now, Grand Illusion, Blowing a Fuse, which I love. Cross to Bear, Army in Color, really good in The Long Goodbye. And then Greenfields, which is the last album I'm going over here. It is Barry's uh, solo album that he released in twenty twenty one. It's it's not really. I mean, it's a solo album because there are no other BGs because you know everybody else is dead and death is dumb and I've talked about that before. But it is not a solo album because it's in the grand tradition of older stars doing duet albums with various artists. And in this case, it was country artists like uh, I think Keith Underwood and and or Carrie oh geez Keith Urban Carrie uh, Keith Urban and uh, Brandy Carlisle and quite a few others and it's. Covers of the hits by the Bee Gees Uh, Overall super super well produced And well performed And considering how old Barry is getting now His voice sounds really good He's still singing And preferring to sing in that soft style But it serves him really well in this album And and he holds his own with the duets with these people Uh, Tracks I like from this album Are 1, 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, and 12 Uh, But they're all good and so look up Greenfields 2021. I listened to it because it was shortly after I watched that Bee Gees uh, documentary. So I was really into it. And that's it. That's the discography. That's um, other than a couple of Morris uh, solo singles, one in the 80s, one in I think 1970. I covered pretty much everything. I know there were some other side projects that, that they had done and collaborations and things that I missed, but I hope it's a pretty comprehensive view, which leads me to my conclusions. Uh, one is that. Say what you want about something that's important to me and that I think is, uh, you know, uh, wonderful, how much they jumped from different genres. They even melded certain genres. They, uh, They did their own amalgamation the way last week's subject Beck did, but in their own way. I'm sure they influenced Beck in some ways to be honest and they were all over the map in in wonderful ways, in weird ways, in all kinds of ways, in experimental ways, in pop ways, and rock and all those genres and that is important. I think the most important thing to note is that they were, were amazing songwriters for themselves and for other people. Uh Barry being the leader and the principal songwriter gets the most of the spotlight. He's also the most consistent. And he had that laid back cool, has that laid back cool. But you got to give credit to Robin as outgoing and as upfront as he is. And just people don't realize what an important voice he held in terms of lead vocals. And even in songwriting whether it was solo or with the BGs and his voice is I think the most beautiful of the three just like you know quintessentially beautiful and Barry's is the you know strongest and I think the most malleable you could say and then Morris is I think the soulful kind of background substance and he was the glue really I think uh, I think that held the band together in a lot of ways at least musically speaking and to note how how prolific and consistent they were throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, they just were far beyond what we remember them for. Uh, Yeah, and some of the styles they covered, 60s rock a la early Beatles, pop from every freaking era, really, up through 2003, really, if you count um, Magnet Robin, solo album, psychedelic, chamber pop, soul and R&B, disco, soft rock, adult contemporary, country, all other kinds of rock, uh, techno pop and new wave funk and Hip-hop, if you include solo careers, just what a mix of styles, and they did them so well. Some varying degrees of success in the market, but they did them so well. Uh, Yes, they were unfairly demonized in the late 70s and beyond in the States. Like I said, they never really came back until they became nostalgia, and, and none of their new stuff was really commercially viable other than a stray hit here or there. And to fall that far from such great heights... You you know, other artists have done that, but it's because for one reason or another, their quality or career in general has waned. But you're going to find this story happen, and I'm going to stress it in season six for a lot of the people I cover, especially older artists and rec, frankly, in that the popularity overseas far surpasses what it is in the States because our tastes are fickle. I'm going, I can't, I mean, I may even do a full episode on how fly by night our musical tastes are in this, in this country and not individually, but as a whole, as a market. And part of that is run by the companies, you know, record companies and streaming services and, uh, you know, a radio such as it is, or whoever does all of that stuff. But part of it is how we absorb music, which is quite different from how a lot of other countries do. And please keep that in mind when you're reviewing, you know, uh, the Bee Gees. And also keep it in mind when you wrap this up, which will be very soon, and go over to patreon.com slash music is not a genre and listen to the bonus episode, as I mentioned, that's going to be in large part about why they fell out of favor and what America's attitudes have to do with that. Uh, and, and so that brings me to the last part of every episode, which is the featured song. And the featured song here is Rex, you make me wanna from syncope from the weird. It's also featured on rec collection, the best of rec 2007 to 2020. It's a straight up dance song. It's a retro dance song. It's got some other elements in there that I like to throw in there. But even though I might not say it was, oh, I listened to the Bee Gees and then did this song, I will say that people who came after the Bee Gees who were influenced by them and other amazing disco acts who pioneered the form and all of that were the people who eventually and subsequently influenced me to create a song like You Make Me Wanna, uh, which is really influenced very much by the brand new Heavies, if you remember them. And they're still around too, by the way. The other thing is it's a melancholy song, but done in an upbeat way. Which is, uh, I mean, the Bee Gees were known. If anything, one strain that was throughout much of their music was melancholy strain. I mean, even if you hear the so the words of "Staying Alive" and the struggle that's in there, it's an upbeat song, but it's got melancholy words. And so that's "You Make Me Wanna," and that's coming up in a few minutes. Are you a Bee Gees fan? Were you ever into them? Do you know them first for their pop hits in the 60s or for their disco era smash success? Do you know them from any other era? Were you even aware that they had a long and successful career more than 20 years beyond Saturday Night Fever and everywhere but over here in the Western world? And... Do you want to find out why you might not have known that? If so, tune in. to patreon.com slash music is not a genre and get that bonus episode. Thank you so much for hanging in with me. I really enjoyed talking about this with you, and and I want to hear everything you have to say because, as always, my objective here are music, conversation, and connection. I will talk to you next week.
2: Sometimes when I'm alone, I get a little crazy. And I need to reach out, because my mind, you know, it goes the places it shouldn't go. Because, you know, you make me, you make me, you make me.